I'm Amy Hall. I'm here with Greg Kokel, and welcome to Stand to Reason's Hashtag STRask Podcast. Hello, Amy. Hello, Greg. Today we have a few questions on the topic of the Bible. Okay. So let's start with one from Ryan Z. How do we know the 66-book Protestant canon of Scripture is the correct one as opposed to the canons that include the apocryphal or deuterocanonical ah, books <laughs> like the Maccabees, Esdras, Tobit, Prayer of Manasseh, etc.? Right. This is a distinction between the Roman Catholic canon and the Protestant canon, okay? So I actually have a piece about this on the Internet. It's an outline. And I think it has to do with the Apocrypha. So if you just search online for the Apocrypha, uh, my outline is there. But I, I remember a couple of the salient details. There was never a unified voice about the Apocrypha, what's called the Apocrypha, those books. Uh, by the way, those books that the Roman Catholic Church has canonized or considers part of their canon, those aren't all of the Apocrypha. It's just a select number of the Apocrypha, okay? The Jews never considered any of those books as part of the of the Hebrew canon. Now, to me, that's significant. These are the people of God who have been the caretakers of uh, of Scripture for millennium. They never considered those things to on, on par with Scripture. Um, there's a, been a split voice um, regarding those books in the body of Christ. There was never any unanimity about it. You have scholars on both sides. Jerome, for example, did not consider the those apocryphal works to be uh, canonical. And um, there is also some difficulty in some of the works. Most of them are, are benign. In other words, theologically, they're not going to be problematic. But there are some that seem to reinforce a peculiar... Roman Catholic doctrines. And what I mean by that is they are peculiar to the Roman Church. They are not held by Protestants, and I think for good reasons, for biblical reasons. And so, interestingly, the Apocrypha did not become part of the canon officially until the Council of Trent in the 17th century. It was in a counter-Reformation move. Now, this doesn't mean it's false, but I just want to give you the history. you got the Reformation. you got Luther. You've got all that stuff going on, and Luther offering a way of understanding justification by faith, and etc., uh, etc., et all that, that was conflicted with the Roman Church. In the Council of Trent, they anathematized a whole bunch of things that Luther taught. So the kinds of things that many Christians take as gospel, quite literally, um, according to the Council of Trent, those beliefs are anathematized. You believe those and you're, you're, you're sons of perdition, essentially. You're on your way to hell, okay? You are accursed to hold these views. And one of those things that was anathematized was the understanding that you're saved by faith alone, okay? Um and in this council, they also officially canonized these books. So though it sometimes sounds to people like the Protestants removed books from the canon, actually it was the Roman Catholic Church who officially placed them in the canon. Now, th- those books were around for thousands, almost 1,800 years, 1,500 years at that time, or seventeen. 
hundred years. But um, so it, it isn't like they just manufactured these things out of thin air, and they had respect in the church in general. Um, but th- just just so you know, the canonization of it came late. There was a split decision in the church. One of the things that we one of the reasons that we are confident in, say, the New Testament canon is because there was a very strong unified response from the church on virtually every single book that this was authoritative because of its apostolic origins or its apostolic connections. All of these books that we're talking about, uh, these are came before the time of Jesus— in, during the Jewish period, and the Jews didn't consider them canon. So these are, I think, all good reasons to uh, uh, to to not consider these books on par with the rest of Scripture. So the sixty-six books of the Bible are still the sixty-six books of the Bible. Those are the books that all Christians affirm, and and uh, also with regards to the 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 Jewish texts, all Jews confirmed. So we have a unified understanding of those books by all Christians, and one group of Christians has added additional books to the canon. And people can make whatever they want of that, but that's the history there in in some. That does seem key to me that they were added rather than removed. Mm-hmm. That, that seems In terms important. of an official action. Right. Yes, right. Yeah, they were around and being used by some, but it was, there, there was controversy. When you have somebody like Jerome that says no, that's a big deal because he was one of the most eminent scholars of his period. And there's nothing wrong with, with reading them. And the, there's nothing wrong with reading books that are spiritually helpful. We do that all the time. Right. It's just there's a difference between being inspired by God and being a, a good, helpful spiritual book. Sure, sure. We it, we do that. We write them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, yeah. even in the early church, you have the Shepherd of Hermas. You've got the Didache. You've got these. Uh, you have these different books that were considered very, very highly and as useful for the church, but not on par with Scripture. Mm-hmm. That's the way I would I would consider these other books. Keeping in mind that when there seems to be a conflict, Scripture. Actual Scripture, God-inspired Scripture, has to trump any differences that you find in these other books that may be helpful. Mm -hmm. So that leads into our next question. This one comes from June. My question is about the New Testament authors. I hear some scholars say 20 of the 27 books are unknown. Who did the first Christians think wrote those books, and how do we know they're inspired if nobody knew who wrote them? I don't—20 out of 27, that's a lot. Um, And— I think that's because they deny the, that Paul is an author of a lot of them, and well, some well, scholars. Uh, yes, right. No, right. Some scholars deny lots of things about that, partly because they late date for some reasons, which I actually have not been able to discover, though I've asked this question a lot. The impulse to late date a lot of these things after the fall of, of Jerusalem uh, and the destruction of the temple. Which, by the way, John A. T. Robinson, who is no conservative at all, puts all the dates prior to that simply because it's not mentioned, and it's hard to believe that anyone writing, um, of you know, after the destruction of the temple, in favor of Christianity, would not have mentioned this because it it would would be a, a convenient appeal to an act of God punishing Jews for rejecting Jesus. Nobody does that. 
And so uh, then the, why? So this, there's good arguments to early date them, but many late date them. And if, if they're late dated sometime in the second century, well, then none of the books could be written by apostles. You know, they might be collections of things that different people wrote, and maybe some apostles, whatever. So uh, I don't know why anybody would say that the the uh, authorship of 20 of the 27 books are not known. Now, I don't have figures in front of me of, uh, you know, I could just count right here in, in the Pauline epistles, the Petrine epistles, and the Joannine epistles. So, you know, I'm looking in the, in the context, the contents. What the, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, okay? We have um, internal evidence regarding many of the other letters from Paul that he wrote Paul, that he wrote these letters. Now, whether you believe the internal evidence or not, that's another question. And so you're going to have critics that are, take exception, and sometimes the the reasons are, are not so good, but they're tied to other presuppositions that they have. Um, Acts and Luke were written by Luke, okay? Um, Matthew was written by Matthew. Now, Mark um, according to, was it Eusebius or, no, not Eusebius, someone else earlier, I can't remember his name, one of the church fathers, Mark was the companion of Paul and recorded, I'm sorry, the companion of Peter and recorded Peter's observations. So you've got the gospel of Mark is substantiated by the apostolic witness of Peter. So we have records that indicate this. I, I don't like it when people say church tradition says. Well, church tradition isn't just like something, some belief that was handed down and everybody talked about it. So, you know, our tradition is we open up one present on Christmas Eve and all the rest of Christmas. It's not that kind of thing. There were early church fathers who actually recorded information that caused us to believe some of these things. For example, Mark being the author under Peter's guidance of the Gospel of Mark. But if you look at the the other books of the New Testament, you know, Romans, Paul, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Paul, Galatians, Paul, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st Thessalonians, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st Timothy, 2nd Timothy, all Paul, Titus, Paul, Philemon, Paul, Hebrews, who knows, James, James. First Peter, uncontested. Peter, Second Peter, some contesting. First John, Second John, Third John, John, Jude, Jude. <laughs> That's why it's named that way. And uh, Revelation was written by John. So I, I, at least prima facie, on the surface of it, there's not all this doubt that uh, we, we, it isn't that we don't know who wrote these documents. We do. And what we can do is look at the testimony given by people. And, and Jay Warner Wallace does a great job of this in Cold Case Christianity, which the 10th anniversary edition is being released. Same day my, my book is being released. We're going to have him on the show, actually, uh, do a show about that. <clears throat> and uh, and he, he makes it clear that there is a chain of custody of these beliefs and, and these ideas and stuff. So we, we can look at the writings of those who followed the disciples and their references back to the writings of the disciples as having been of the disciples and a citation of those books as being holy writ. So it isn't like, you know, hundreds of years later, we're just trying to figure this out and piece it together, and and the the, the winners, you know, decide who which books. It it, it wasn't like that. And it, Peter refers to the writings of Paul, saying that they're inspired 
Paul refers to the writings of Luke and right. quotes it as scripture. Right. So I, I think there is, if what I'm hearing you say, Greg, is that there there, are, there is early Christian testimony that they believed the authors were who we think they yeah, are, who they inter, say they are. Interconnected web mm-hmm. of support, right? Now I know there are some scholars who will say who examine like the the word usage and they'll say, well, this can't be Paul because he uses these words and mm-hmm. differently. And I, I'm not really familiar with all the arguments, but I do know that part of the issue is they would use uh, scribes who would write down. So there could be differences there. Even people use different words for at different times That's for right. different people. You could do this with other people's writings and people have done it with other well, people's look writings. At, look, those who are familiar with tactics and who have read The Story of Reality. I authored both of those. You know that because you helped me with all the wordsmithing. And they are different voices. They mm-hmm. are very different voices. And uh, some might say, well, look at this author here. doesn't use very many contractions in The Story of Reality. He couldn't be the same guy who used contractions all the time in tactics. No, I did that on purpose for a particular effect. Um, so that's why you can't always trust these these literary assessment methods um, to to try to figure out the authorship of these books mm-hmm. because there some people have applied those same methods to the author's books that talk about those methods and have come to the conclusion using those methods that the authors didn't write this book. It was a bunch of people that put it together, you know. So mm-hmm. anyway, that's basically higher critical method, form form criticism, et cetera, et cetera, and those have some value, but they also, you know, can be very misleading depending on the presuppositions that you go into the discussion mm-hmm. with. Yeah, so uh, Jay Warner Wallace's book is a great place to start, Cold yeah. C- Case Christianity, if you're interested in hearing more about the arguments there. And obviously, we, right. we've only been talking about this for a few minutes, and this is a huge right. debate, but... I I don't think it's fair to say that nobody knew who wrote them at the time. I think they did think they knew who wrote them. Right, which is why they trusted them. Right, yeah. Yeah, because, see, many of the people, the early church fathers, these weren't just early believers that got old and became church fathers and, you know, got in charge of churches. These early church fathers were discipled by the disciples who were discipled by Jesus. And then these who were discipled by Jesus discipled other people. And all of this string of disciples left behind writing that we can look at and see, as Jay Warner calls it, using a detective term, the chain of custody of the ideas that were entrusted from generation Mm -hmm. to generation. Let's go on to a a question from Fran. I have a friend who claims to be a Christian. He believes the earth is flat and denies Paul's apostleship and writings. How do I discuss these matters with him? Well, the first question that comes to my mind is what does he mean when he says he's a Christian? All right? He he must have some definition in his mind, some sense of what a real Christian is that he would characterize himself as one. Um, uh, gee, it's hard. It's hard to um, be a real Christian and dismiss Paul. For one, you said Peter in Second Peter chapter three um, describes Paul's writings as scripture. You um, you have in Galatians one an account by Paul himself of going to the pillars, and that would be Peter, James, and John, 
and bringing what he understood Jesus to have taught him to them for verification to determine whether, as he puts it, he'd run in vain. And yet he was received um, fully as a brother and his doctrines were received. And so it's, um, I'm just curious why a person would say, you know, Paul's out. Um, and th- there were there have been traditions of uh, in the broader Christian movement of taking whole sections of Scripture and just discounting them. I think the Manichaeans uh, early on were, you know, they said the Old Testament is they liked Paul. They didn't like the, the, the anything Jewish. The, I'm not the sure. The Marcionites, or maybe Marcionites. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, the Marcionites were later. The Marcionites. Thank you, and. Um, so, I mean, you just have you, you have these things happening where it's just odd. Why reject Paul 2,000 years after the fact when the entire church, um, almost without exception, accepted everything that Paul had written? Now, he had to defend his apostleship. And you see this in First Corinthians or Second Corinthians, especially, um, because there were naysayers that that were after him. Uh, there were people, he says in Philippians, that were preaching uh, the gospel out of competition with him. And he said, "Well, whether in pretense or in truth, the gospel's preached. So, okay, they're fine with me as long as the truth is communicated." He wasn't taking it personally. So, um, there's it, it. There were naysayers, but as a whole. If Paul was the author of a letter, the church characteristically accepted it, hands down. It was canonical. Uh, So that's why I'm kind of curious about why this person rejects all the Pauline writers. Now, I suspect he's got an unusual definition of Christianity. And, And this is where, you know, using the first Columbo question over and over and over again as it applies to different parts of what he says. What do you mean by that? What's going on here? Give me a clear understanding of your view will um, will help Fran to, to know what she's up against. Okay? But you want particulars. You want specifics. Right. I suspect this person has some reasons because this is an unusual view. I reject everything Paul wrote. And it's unclear if he's saying he doesn't think Paul really wrote them. That's what I thought by denying his writings. But it sounds like if he's denying his apostleship, even if he wrote them, it wouldn't matter because he's denying him as an apostle. So I agree, Greg. I think I think you need to get more information. Why do you reject them? Do you think they don't fit with what Jesus said? And I know there are some people who say that. And if that's the case, now you have to explain how those things fit with what Jesus said. Mm-hmm. Explain that the the people who Jesus trained accepted Paul as teaching the truth. And uh, like you said, Peter refers to his writings as scripture. So he's got to wrestle with that, too. Um, there might be something there. You know, he, uh, Fran mentions that he believes the earth is flat. I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure that has much to do with here. I think I would focus on Paul first. But there might be some underlying thing beneath both of these mm-hmm. positions, and that might be why Fran brought them both up. Yeah, and it's—I'm uh, not sure what to say about this, and I, I want to be careful. I don't want to sound condescending, but somebody who believes the earth is actually flat, it's hard to take seriously the other things that person believes, because something is wrong. <laughs> and if he thinks—I'm not sure if he takes that on what he thinks is biblical authority or not, but— um, 
you know, I, I've been on five continents. You know, you, you can sit outside, you could go down the 405 freeway at twilight, past the airport, and you could look at the planes that are approaching, and you can see the curvature of the earth reflected in the approaches of the planes. They're wrapping around. The furthest ones are actually lower, but they're not lower in elevation. They are lower visually because of the curvature of the earth. So uh, you, you, people knew that the earth was was round or spherical, whatever, even before the Egyptians knew this. This is how they – you could see it in an eclipse. You see the shadow in the eclipse. So I, I, the, well, I don't get it. I, unfortunately, I think this is more widespread than – I would like. There might be somebody listening right now. Who, I, I think. Um, I think it was last year. I had somebody at our reality conference argue with me about whether or not the Earth was flat, and she wanted to make her case that the Earth was flat. And what she was saying is she was citing certain verses, and that's why I think what might be behind this is a hermeneutical problem. Mm-hmm. So it's a misunderstanding of how to interpret the text, mm-hmm. and that leads them to not understand how Jesus. What he says can fit with Paul. Therefore, Paul doesn't seem to make sense. So I think there might be some sort of hermeneutical issue. You might want to start there. Yeah, and keep in mind that so much of what people say about things, and this includes biblical writers, is the language of appearance. So I can look at my iPhone now and still see on the, on the, uh, the, the weather thing for Thousand Oaks, sunrise and sunset. But of course, the, moved, the sun isn't moving at all. It's the earth that's spinning. But appearances are that the sun is rising in the east and setting in the west. And we talk about that all the time, even though we know, strictly speaking, literally that's not what's going on. So um, it, it's normal for anyone to describe the earth in a flat way because from the position of almost every observer, that's exactly the way it looks, unless you're on Mount Everest and then you can see something more, mm-hmm. uh, or something like that. I get my point. And you might it's also... hermeneutical. Right? Yeah. You might also ask Fran if he sees those two as related. And maybe he has already mentioned that, and that's why you ask you ask both those things together to us, because yeah. it does seem like an odd combination. Maybe those are just the two things that stood out to you. But hopefully this gives you some ideas about where you can take this, and uh, you can have a good conversation with your friend. All right. That's it for today. Thank you for sending in your question. Um, If you haven't sent one in yet, please do. And we would love to hear from you. This is Amy Hall and Greg Kokel for Stand to Reason. 